leaves that this is a family battle. It's not an individual battle. This is a family battle. And I don't just mean your family, your immediate family. I mean it's the church family battle. Uh, Fifteen years ago, it's been 15 years, Donna can't hardly believe it, we began a Pure Desire program in this fellowship. Um, and the culture at the time was not into it. They didn't even want us in the bulletin. It was a problem that uh, was a man problem. You go somewhere, you get it fixed. Uh, so, And that was not just this fellowship. This was uh, nationwide in the evangelical church. And now it's probably become the most single destructive force in the church, in the evangelical church. Um, if you listen to Moody Channel or any uh, active Christian channel, you're going to see this is an active subject nationwide now in the church. Uh, the stigma used to be huge. It was like divorce in the 50s or 60s, uh, but now it's, it's so common that uh, there doesn't seem to be a stigma about it, so we can speak more openly about it. Our, our goal this morning is not to shock you. You know, you may have no knowledge of pornography. Uh, so for some of you, what I'm about to share might be a little bit shocking. That's not our goal. Our goal is not to shock you. It's basically to uh, educate you and equip you. Uh, so I'm going to go over some statistics. And that's, that's about all I'm going to do. I'm going to go over some statistics and let the statistics speak for themselves. When we started this 15 years ago, and it, it, it basically say, stayed kind of as a subversive organization, uh, I had the fellowship stand up. I had different sections of the fellowship stand up, and I may still do that, gather my courage and have you do this. Uh, it's a multi-billion dollar business. There are 42 million porn sites available to anybody who wants to go there. The annual revenue is more than the NFL, the NBA, and the MLB combined. There are more viewers, and it generates more revenue than ABC, CBS, NBC, and probably some others thrown in. 97% of pastors say it's a serious problem, or 93%. Only 7% are doing anything about it. We want to be part of the 7% that are going to do something about it. And I think after you s listen to some of the statistics, uh, you, you will agree. If you have children, you should be rabid about this. The average age of exposure is 11. That's the average age. Some exposures as, as young as eight. Ninety-four percent of teens, and I'm looking around at the teens here because you know where I'm coming from. You guys have got the iPhones. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. Ninety-four percent of teens have been exposed. It only takes three exposures to create an addiction. Most studies show and the studies that I've looked at are Covenant Eyes Ministries, Focus on the Family, uh, Josh McDonald's uh, Ministries, the Barna Group, anywhere you go will show that the problem in the church is just like divorce. It's as prevalent as in the general public. So you need to uh, realize that. Most studies show that the divorce rate increases by 300% if you're engaging in that, both partners or either or. 300% increase in the divorce rate. 56% of divorces report one party or another have an obsessive interest in pornography. This is really scary because when we started this program, it was a guy problem. Women weren't even involved. That was only 15 years ago. 70% of Christian youth pastors report that one teen has come to them for help within the last 12 months. I think if you talk to some of your leadership, I saw something on the board back there for the youth. 
And I am really excited about what our young people leadership are doing. They had the, they had the, the guts of this, uh, the morality of it outlined on the board here about a week ago. 87% of Christian women watch pornography. So if I was to have this room, women stand up, or, or uh, there would just be this little section over here that people wouldn't be standing. 33% of women 25 and under search for porn at least once a month. All our college young people. 68% of Christian men and 50% of pastors view porn on a regular basis. You might say, well, we're in LCC. We're a small rural community. We're not impacted by that. I wish I had my cell phone. My there's, there's where it's at right there. Everybody has access. And unless you have some screens on that, then you're going to be, it's going to be available to your kids. And if it's not available to your children, whoever they hang out with, they're going to have it. Um, it's the Christian drug of choice. And the reason is, it's, you don't have to go out and buy it. It's free, it's available, it's secretive, and it's the endorphins that, that you engage when you are involved with sexual activity are right in your own body. They're coming out of your own brain. This study that we're, that's coming up, we'll go into that. One of the things we want to emphasize in the study is that porn is like any drug. It's not usually the problem. There's an underlying cause. There's underlying wounds that, uh, that people are medicating. And it, this just happens to be the Christian drug of choice. I think our two biggest enemies uh, in this battle are secrecy and shame. Um, if you can't and don't identify the enemy, you can't fight it. So you have to identify the enemy and you have to engage it. The Holy Spirit will convict you and cause shame as will your conscience. I think we have to be careful that we're not the root of the shame. We're in the habit, as in the evangelical church, of killing our wounded. Would you agree? Uh, most of us, at some point, it just died on me here again. Is it coming and going, folks? I'm so sorry. Um, I think about the Pharisee and the tax collector and I think we can fall in that trap sometimes where we hear about somebody's situation they say oh gee I'm sure glad I'm not like that person I'm sure glad I don't have that problem go back to Romans and Paul's list of of sins and if you track through those he's got gossip right next to murder so I think we can be so destructive and so judgmental uh, but I think if we're reminded that the word says what all our righteousness is as filthy rags and except for our righteousness in Jesus Christ we have no righteousness so if we're if 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 you're sitting out there and, and we can all fall into the trap from time to time. But if you're sitting out there feeling smug because you're more righteous than the next person, then you want to really check your spirit on that. And I'm not saying that there aren't people whose walk is much closer to the Lord than others. But we need to develop a culture of grace toward especially this subject. Um,
this shouldn't be a point of discouragement for us. Uh, 87% of people who engage in this program have victory. And that's awesome. So there is victory in this. And uh, we, want to, we want to focus on that. It's a winnable battle. It's a great dragon. When Mark and Tammy first came to this fellowship, I was talking about uh, the giants in the land and that our fellowship was in the desert and we were afraid to cross the sea. We were, crossed to engage, we were afraid to engage the giants. And the giants in the land now and, you know, years ago in this fellowship weren't the Nephilim. They weren't the six-fingered six giants like Goliath. The giants in the land are things like pornography. So we want to engage this head-on. We're going to start next Sunday evening, 6 o'clock. Tammy, that's where we ended up, wasn't it? Uh, 6 to 8. There will be workbooks for people who want to really engage this, and there'll be workbooks for each individual so that you can walk through this. Now, I think I, I, we really want to emphasize this, that you may have the problem, if, but whether you have the problem or not, you need to be equipped for it because your young people have access to so much of it that we need to be protecting them. So if you're a parent and you have teens or you're a grandparent and you have teens, less, I mean, you're surrounded by, by young people, you need to engage this battle. And there, I have personally had enough evidence in this body recently of people coming to me, others have too, that are, are struggling with this. And they want to have victory. They don't like it. It's a detestable uh, habit, but it's, uh, it's the real world for us now. So that's all I'm going to say about it, Mark. Uh, Come on up here and <laughs> Must have been what Gideon sounded like. Um, these are the workbooks, um, and the church has bought 50, 60, we have 60 of them, 40 of them, something like that. And so, uh, <clears throat> no charge, we wanted just, uh, as a church, we want to buy that for and we really encourage everybody to take this in. Uh, I will confess I'm one of those parents that um, thought he was well prepared, thought we were well prepared for this subject as our kids were growing up and found out that we weren't. Uh, and I was also, I was thinking about as Dennis was talking and he talked about we need to, um, we need to create a culture of grace as we work with one another in this area. I will confess there was a time where I was that person that wasn't very gracious. And uh, it, it had nothing to do with sexual addiction. Um, it had to do with drug addiction. And I wasn't that guy that was really gracious. I kind of looked down my nose at people that had, that had those struggles, that either struggled with booze or struggled with drugs. And uh, <clears throat> I found myself kind of puffed with pride a little bit that it wasn't my problem, you know, and how could somebody be you know, that weak or that dumb or, you know, that vulnerable to struggle in areas of addictions. Uh, and then God did something crazy. <laughs> God brought a, 
a guy that into our lives that needed a job, a guy that had struggled with a particular addiction to meth, and uh, he had gone through, he dried out the hard way. He sat in jail for nine months, and, uh, and he came back to our community, and he needed a job. He didn't have a job. He didn't have a driver's license. Uh, he didn't have a way to get around, but he was willing to work, and he was a good worker. And God taught me more about grace in that situation, in that relationship, as, as uh, we kind of took him on a little bit of a trial run, and we told him, hey, you know, uh, we don't, if, if you fall off the wagon, like, you can't, you can't be here. Uh, we're just not going to have it around. But that being said, um, he shared more with me, a non-believer, he sure, sure shared more with me in the area of being addicted um, and the struggle that he had. And, uh, and I, it was a great opportunity back then for me to share the Lord with him just on a daily basis. And it all started with creating a kind of a work environment of being gracious. Uh, that doesn't mean that, you know, th- that doesn't mean that everything's a free pass. It just means that in our communication, in our understanding of people, in our, in our you know, transactions uh, as far as uh, relational transactions and time we spend together that we are we're gracious and God really humbled me through that and and these types of studies are so valuable so valuable and this content is good you know like junior high age up I would probably be a safe bet to say even though we know that statistically that the exposure rate for some is pretty young pretty young and and we live in a society that makes that so easy so accessible, and, and the, the, I'll tell you, and this is the last thing I'll say about it, I'll tell you the biggest danger that I've found out over probably the last couple of years <clears throat> in that, that kind of leads kids into this area is our society has made this whole kind of sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s, now all these years later, but they've made things cute. They've made things cute. And, uh, and, and now, I mean, literally, uh, you know, all forms of porn or soft porn are all over. It's not just the, you know, in the X-rated movie section. Uh, it's on the nightly TV. Because it comes across, and the gateway into it really is this idea of being cute. And so, thank you, Dennis, for, you know, kind of hitting us with those statistics. Kind of a, kind of a punch in the gut in the way. And, uh, and sometimes we need that. Sometimes we need a, a refresher. Like, this is where things really are in our culture. And how as believers, how as Christ followers, how are we going to deal with these things? Uh, and what are we going to do about it? If you haven't been here for a week or two or more or at all, uh, we definitely want to welcome you. Um, We've been studying through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we've charged through the first nine chapters of 1 Corinthians. The time that we have left, we're going to jump into chapter 10, and well, we've just heard great reminders when it comes to issues of sexual integrity and sexual purity. Uh, Paul is in the process here of reminding the Corinthian church. Uh, He reminds them of God's faithfulness by recounting some stories in Israel's history. Now in Corinth, not all of the believers, the new believers in Corinth, not all of them were Jewish. It was a mixed bag. It was, it was uh, Jew and Gentile combined, and they were trying to figure out that whole dynamic, that whole relationship. How do we get along with one another? How do we follow Christ together? Uh, surely, though, even the, even the Gentiles uh, had a sense of, of Jewish history, um, and particularly the Old Testament stories from the book of Exodus. And Paul starts right off in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, where he says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, And all drank of the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. 
there's a common theme here in those first five verses, and that's the word all. They experienced this as a group of people. Uh, the, the, the Hebrews, as they're on their way through, into the, or out of Egypt, they all had this common experience in the Exodus. They all went through the same trials and tribulations. They all went the same route. They all had a commonality in that. And regardless of their tribe, regardless of their family, regardless of where or who they worked for in Egypt, where they worked, what their job was, regardless of how closely they were related to Moses, they all shared in the good, the bad, and the ugly of the desert experience in the book of Exodus. They all walked through it together. There wasn't a hierarchy other than God had chosen Moses. And to start with, Moses, who was the predominant figure in the storyline in the book of Exodus, even he had his issues, right? Even he had his issues. He could have easily put Moses up on a pedestal, or he could have put himself up on a pedestal. And God has a way of dealing with us when we put ourselves or other people on pedestals. Because Moses tried to accomplish that exodus in his own flesh, failed miserably and spent time in the wilderness himself before God brought him back to accomplish the task. But look at the things that are listed here in these first five verses. Look at how the Israelites experience God. They experience God's cloud of protection from the searing desert heat. Paul recounts that. Paul records also they experienced together as a group the escape from their Egyptian oppressors through the Red Sea. They experienced the leadership that that God had for them through Moses and his brother and his sister. It's a bit of that idea there where it says in verse 2, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all, <clears throat> all of them. So it's kind of like you follow God's game plan or you don't follow at all. They all ex- experience the source of God's refreshment and the cool, clean water coming from the rock. So this, Paul's building this idea that there's a commonality here in what they experienced. And he's, he's trying to, co- to communicate that to the, these Corinthian believers. These Corinthian believers that, that had their own struggles had their own experience, they had their own miraculous events, they were loaded with spiritual gifts, similar to all that was done for Israel back in the book of Exodus. They kind of had it all, Uh, but about the people in the desert, Paul ends this whole passage with kind of a downer, he says, but most of them God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Why? Why? Why was God not well pleased? And where's Paul going with all of this? Why did, the, why did it seem like it was just this slow, you know, dredge through the desert? Why did so many people fall off the, to the wayside? Paul says in verse 6, now these things become our examples. So what happened then now becomes an example for the the first century believers there in Corinth. They also became the examples for us as well here today. Now these things become our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages come. So to kind of parse out these next few verses, these 6 through 11, Paul's writing and saying, hey, 
These things are up there on the board, so to speak. They're, they're history, but they're just not history for no purpose. They're history for our learning, for our understanding. They're warnings for, for us today in the first century. They're warnings for us today now right here in 2021. So we're at the end. He said that you know, in the first century, we're at the end of the age. Well, if they're at, really at the end of the age there in verse 11. We're really at the end of the age. And need to pay attention to these examples. These examples are as follows. He lists them off there, one through five. Warnings from the Exodus account. To the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. The definition of lust, my definition of lust is this idea. It's the unquenchable desire for more. You, you, you just can't get enough. This is where any addiction, regardless of whether it's sexual or, or uh, you know, chemical or whether it's alcohol, you just can't get enough. And what I had last time is not enough, and so I need more, and I need more, and I need more, and I need more. I, I, I can't get the same feeling that I used to get, so i got to take more i got to snort more. i got to drink more. i got to view more. I need more, 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 more. More is really a single word definition of the word lust. And they lust, lusted, lusted after things, Paul says. Strong's Dictionary says this. It's not just a uh, cerebral you know, type of... Uh, desire for more no it's actually much deeper than that the strong's dictionary says it's to set your heart upon so your mind is focused on it your heart is focused on it and and that's what you're going to have and anybody that stands in your way or anything that stands in your way is uh fair game it's absolutely fair game that's why people that have you know gambling addictions will absolutely just bankrupt themselves to hear that ching one more time. Well, behind them, they're left with nothing. Absolutely zero financially. They'll put the last two coins in the slot and pull the handle. Because they, their, their heart is set upon that. Their heart is set upon that. That's why we have the, the struggles that we have in our society or a big reason we struggle with uh, or have these issues in our society of theft. Because people have to have another fix. People have to have another hit. They have to have it. They have nothing left to sell or to trade or to barter for another fix. And so your stuff is on the table. It's an issue. It's an issue right here in our community. Your stuff is on the table. And they will take your stuff. They'll break another commandment so that they can get that more, more, more fix it's, a, it's, a, it's an issue. It's an issue. It's the first warning that he has. The unquenchable desire for more. This is an example for us. An example not to follow. The second one they talked about is idolatry. Idolatry. You do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people that sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Idolatry is simply boils down to this. It's serving or worshiping anyone or anything other than the true God. Uh, <clears throat> where are we spending our mental energy? Where are we spending our meditation time? What are, what, 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 are we, what are we focused on? Those are the things. If it's anything other than the true and living God, if it's anything other than Christ himself, and, and Jesus then gets slid into a lower category, a lower bracket as a priority in our lives, those things, warnings should be going off. Red lights should be flashing. You're struggling perhaps with idolatry. You're struggling with idolatry, and you can take the Hebrews out of Egypt, but they struggled to get Egypt out of the Hebrews. Because as they left, as, they, as the, the Egyptians went, get out of here before we all die. And they're giving them everything that they need. And on one hand, that was a mighty blessing. On the other hand, the Hebrews took all of that idolatry that Egypt was involved with. 
and they took it with them as they were following God. A lot of the whole process and a lot of the whole storyline of the book of Exodus is this systematic, you know, God is just like systematically dealing with their idolatry, with those things that they've set their hearts on, with those things that they're, they're replacing God with. Where's our source of provision? That's a great question to ask if you think that you're struggling in you know, idolatry, if you're idolizing someone or something. Is that person, is that thing, is that job, is that career, is that, is that notoriety, is that reputation, is that what's really feeding you? Is it what's really feeding me? Then you'll know that you're on dangerous turf. And the Hebrews struggle with it. Israel, Israel struggle with it. Uh, if they struggle with it, the Corinthian church, they really struggle with it because their whole culture was wrapped around idolatry. Back to Israel. Israel failed to keep their focus on God. And they started giving themselves over to idolatry. You can see that in Exodus 32, 1 through 6, Numbers 25, 1 through 3, a couple of reference points. And some of the Corinthians, <coughs> Christians, not only got too close to their associations with idols, but they also made an idol out of their own knowledge and their own rights, a couple of things that we've preached on the last couple of weeks. And so they would, Paul says there, he says, knowledge puffs up. They would, they would make their knowledge, and of course the Greeks were big on knowledge, they would make their knowledge an idol, or they would make their rights an idol, as we have talked about how we deal with the interactions. And in their situation, it was an issue of, uh, what do I do with meat sacrificed to idols? Is it okay? Is it not okay? What about somebody else that doesn't think it's okay, and they invite me for dinner? <laughs> what, what are we going to do? It's a good day to fast. That's what be a great answer. It's a great opportunity. No, I'm fasting today. It's okay. You know. But some of these guys took their understanding and they put it up and over the top, whether it's their knowledge of the situation or their personal rights, and they were willing to trample over other people's conscience because they idolized their own rights or they idolized their own knowledge. Not really an issue in our culture today, is it? I, I don't. I don't see that type of mentality. It's an issue in our culture where people just really idolize their own rights or idolize their own knowledge. Just scratch that from your notes. It's not an issue. I'm being really facetious at this point. The third thing that Paul mentions here, and it dives right into the video we just watched. It dives right into Dennis's uh, uh, announcement and testimony and, and the statistics that he read from in verse 8 Paul says this he says let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did and in one day 23,000 fell uh, fair to say in the book of Exodus uh, that God was pretty short fused in the area of sexual immorality pretty short fused now, quick definition of sexual immorality. It's, it's kind of a broader translation. The Greek word there is pornea, which is where we get our word pornography. Uh, sexual immorality is uh, probably better stated. Maybe if you're reading from the King James Version, I think your version would say fornication. Sexual immorality gives you kind of this broad view of anything, uh, which is not a, altogether a bad view, depending upon what the topic is. But intimacy or sexual intimacy outside of God's clearly stated plan for marriage, that's the, uh, my homebrew definition of sexual immorality. Intimacy outside of God's clearly stated plan for marriage. The Greek culture was saturated, saturated with this phrase, sexual idolatry. Kind of mixing the two together. Their worship was mostly, mostly sexual in nature. 
That's why these things were such, so hard for them to, to, to pull away from and to get away from. You see that in 1 Corinthians uh, 6 and 7. We've preached on those chapters here recently. But Paul says, hey, the Hebrews struggled with this. Uh, you guys are struggling with it. Definitely it's an issue for today, if you listen to the statistics read earlier. Sex, sexual immorality is, is something to be avoided. Let us not commit sexual immorality. Some of them did. One day, 23,000 fell. My question after reading that verse is, what number would Paul insert there if he wrote that verse today? Twenty-three thousand—that's a drop in the bucket. Pornography industry is one of the the greatest uh, industries in the world for generating revenue. As Dennis read, it brings in more revenue than the three major sporting—you know, football, baseball, and basketball—combined. Not only does it do that, and Dennis didn't even touch on this, <clears throat> it is the number one reason for the human trafficking issue worldwide. Absolutely across the board, there's nothing that comes uh, even a close second to the issues of human trafficking except for enslaving people eventually for the pornography industry. Curious what number the Lord would see that would fit today's sad culture globally. It wouldn't be 23,000. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by the serpents. The idea of tempting, tempting Christ, the idea of tempting God, uh, the attempt is simply put this way, it's to put to the test. It's to put to the test God's attributes, such as His knowledge, His will, His power, or His wisdom. This testing of God can be made by word, deed, or omission. So to put God to the test, well, <clears throat> it sounds this way. Well, God, if you'll do this, th then I'll do that. Right? If you'll do this, I'll do that. Well, if you can show me a miracle, then I'll believe. Simple test. I'm sure there's many of us, I, I can think of times in my own life where, where I was in that mentality. Guess what happened? You want to take a guess? What happened? <laughs> Good story. Not applicable. Nothing happened. You want to put God to the test? He just leaned back and watched the chips fall. Which I guess is applicable. Right? He said, don't put God to the test. The Israelites were famous for putting God to the test. Many times just disregarding his words anyway. The end of it all. He says, don't put God to the test. Don't put God to the test. For the sake of time, we'll keep moving. The fifth warning from the book of Exodus that Paul accounts here for in 1 Corinthians 10 is this, is complaining. Complaining. If tempting God leads you to discontentment, then complaining is discontentment in action. Complaining is discontentment put to word. In Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9, describes the incident uh, that kind of combines the two, uh, 4 and 5 here, tempting God and complaining. But it describes this incident where in response to the complaining of the people, God sent fiery serpents among the people. That was the, uh, what Paul wrote about here, and were destroyed by serpents. But God sent fiery serpents among the people. Again, their complaining hearts showed them to be self-focused and more concerned about their own desires than God's glory. The same issues causing trouble for the Corinthian Christians who would not yield their rights to eat meat sacrificed to idols for the sake of another brother. So there becomes this grumbling. Well, I'd really like to have that steak. I don't care where it was prepared and what it was slaughtered for. Well... Then the brother's like, no, wait a minute. Like, that was involved in idol worship. I can't be a part of that. Well, and this back and forth, this complaining culture was kind of rising up in Corinth, a lot like it was 
in the desert in God's provision with the Israelites. Because of the warning in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5 that we read earlier, it seems like the Corinthian believers, they believed that they were safe from the danger of being destroyed like the Israelites were destroyed. But Paul's warning stands. Paul's warning stands, and it's essentially this. If it happened to Israel, it can happen to you. Be on guard. If it happened to Israel, it can happen to you. Be on guard. Be watchful. Be ready. Pay attention to what's going on. I will thread in a couple of things for today that as I mentioned at the beginning, talking about issues of addiction, I was not as prepared as a father as I should have been. I can't encourage fathers to be more prepared. Like, this is a critical issue. You think it's not an issue, it'll catch you. And it'll become an issue. You must be prepared, husbands, fathers, moms, mothers. You have to be prepared. You think you're a grandma and grandpa, you're off the hook, you raised your kids, be prepared. You can be a tremendous asset in the lives of your grandkids and the other young kids that you come in contact with. Just simply by who you're promoting, what you're standing for, the idea that sexual integrity, as we talked about in the announcement anyway, but all areas of integrity, God puts up there as, as something to, be, to, to strive for. And we all can band together. And Dennis and I were talking about this just before the service. It's all of our jobs, all of our jobs to band together and to do what we can do to help the next generations, to help these, next, these, these young ones, whether they're downstairs or the kids that are here in the auditorium. We can all play a part in that. We can all have a piece uh, uh, in that battle. We can all swing the sword, so to speak, when it comes to these issues. And I can't encourage you enough to jump into that fray. Like that is a part of who God's created you to be is to stand for His righteousness. Stand for the things that God stands for. Promote integrity across the board, especially in the areas that are so easily, uh, easily accessible for the next generation. And that is the, this issue of sexual integrity. That's a number one issue in our culture. I've been coaching football for a long time. I can see it across the board. The minute that we step onto the field in August, and by the time we get to November now and the season's almost over, I have a pretty good sense of who's who and who's struggling with what just because of being around these kids just two hours a day. Two hours a day. Jump in the fight. Jump in the fight. It can't be one or two. It's got to be everybody. Everybody's got to pull their weight. And I speak that with a sense of regret that there was a time that I wasn't pulling my weight. I wasn't taking these warnings right here that the Apostle Paul shares in 1 Corinthians 10 about what happened in Exodus. I wasn't taking those warnings seriously enough. I regret that. So I'm here to say, hey, we're all called to do better and we're all in this fight together. It's not just me. It's all of us. It's all of us. Be careful. The church there in Corinth, they seem to have this regard, <clears throat> to have regarded the issue that we've talked about in the previous few weeks of eating meat sacrificed to idols and therefore stumbling, or thereby stumbling their brother. Uh, they seem to think it was a small issue. They seem to think that that was kind of a small issue. And this is really the. I think the turning point of why the Apostle Paul turns to the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, because it seemed to be kind of a small issue. And I wonder if he was thinking that perhaps maybe the Israelites centuries before thought it was kind of a small issue what they were doing, not a big deal that they have a little idol in their pocket, you know, so cute and cuddly, and why wouldn't we want to bring it along on the journey, you know, only to pull it out later and have it be something that you're judged for kind of a small issue. That's, those small issues really are 
reflection of the selfishness, the self-focused heart, which is the kind of heart that God destroyed among the Israelites. It was the hearts that were faithless, that chose not to follow, chose not to trust. And while at one point it probably seemed to be a small issue for the Israelites and for the Corinthians, a relatively small symptom, but it was a symptom of the great and dangerous disease. So what's the solution to avoid uh, repeating Israel's folly? What's, the, what's, what's Paul's remedy? What's the Holy Spirit saying through the Apostle Paul that is the uh, course corrector for the Corinthians church and perhaps our course corrector here today? In other words, make it personal. How can we survive? How can you survive the desert experience? Right? How can you survive the desert experience? How can we survive it as a church? What lessons does God have for us to learn? Well, there's a key couple of keys right here as we close out today. Look at verse 12 through 12 and 13. We'll find a few keys. Verse 12 says this, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except which is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to to bear it. A uh, couple, three things. Don't get short-sighted and haughty about your situation. Don't get short-sighted and haughty about your situation. That was kind of my story before I hired this guy. I, I found myself to be, you know, put myself on low pedestal. Hey, you don't have any addiction issues. Everybody else is a loser that has addiction issues. I, I would never have said that, but I will guarantee you, looking back, that I was thinking it. I was the guy that was haughty about my situation. I was the guy that was, you know, kind of had myself elevated a little bit. Ah, Mark is doing pretty good. Kind of a super Christian dude, you know, doing his thing. Yeah, God has a way of fixing those things. Yeah. One of my favorite, I don't know why I'm thinking about this, but one of our favorite books that we read was, um, we listened to this guy at a conference one time, Phil Calloway, a Canadian author super funny this guy's hilarious but um, we bought his book and the title of his book is uh, I used to have answers now I have kids and um, we still have a copy I go back to it from time to time uh, because I, I, I think that you know I just love the way that the guy communicated and, and the things that he had to say and uh, he does even through the humor he wraps it back to uh, who Christ is in, in raising your kids but don't be short-sighted and haughty about your situation. Therefore, him, <clears throat> let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except which is common to man. Hey, sin is a common to everyone. Sin is common to everyone. The great news is, the great news of the Bible is, and the great news of the gospel the great news about Jesus is, is we can be free from that sin. But everybody at some point has struggled with it in some capacity. And so it really, and on, on one level, and on one way of thinking it, that you know, having a hardcore addiction is no different than being a gossip or a liar. Some people are addicted to lying. Some people are addicted to gossiping. They have to be the person to tell the story. They always have to be right, and so they can't ever be perceived as wrong or, or not telling the truth, so they just keep stacking them up like Jenga blocks, and they have an addiction to, being, to, to, to having themselves being seen a certain way. There's all kinds of addictions. Some are just a little bit more prevalent. Some do do greater damage, I'll say. But I would fear, I would say that you could say, therefore him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall, is every bit as applicable to the person that's addicted to being known a certain way than it is for the person that's struggling watching porn on the internet. Since common to everybody, don't put yourself or another on a pedestal. 
I think sometimes we see people in a certain light and we think, wow, they must really have it all together when we get to know them. And as I've gotten to know many of you, your stories blow me away. To hear what you struggled with and what God overcame in your life, I would never have thought was true. We should be very careful about this idea of the pedestal for ourselves and for other people. Three, number three, God is always, always, always faithful. God is always, always, always faithful. God is always faithful in your situation to, to, to work and to bring you to where He wants you to be. Not always fun, not always pleasant. Sometimes these great surprises. Sometimes it is fun. Sometimes it is like, you know, really, you know, uh, awesome. But know this, God is always faithful in your situation, no matter how hard you're struggling with something, no matter how hard it seems like you can't get away from this thing, no matter how much you think your identity is this way, God is saying, no, 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 you're a Christ follower. Your identity's in me. And he's going to shave, and he's going to chisel, and he's going to chip, and he's going to bang away at the things uh, that you don't need in your life and that I don't need in my life. He's going to mold and shape you into the image of Christ. That's his goal. That's his job. That's his desire. Whatever those things are that are standing in his way, he will be faithful to that. And he will be faithful to not let you hang out and dry. He'll be faithful to not let you hang out and dry. Look at it again. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So God's faithful here in three ways. He's faithful to not, not let the temptation go too far. The book of Job is a great primer on that. God's faithful to not let the temptation go too far. He's faithful to create an escape route. Uh, most of us don't turn on to the escape route. We struggle to take the turn. But God creates in every scenario, in every situation, He will create an escape route for you. Are you going to put your signal on and turn? That's the question. That's where you need to, to consider in the moment, in the struggle. He's going to create an escape route. He's always faithful to do that. And He's also faithful to do this. He's also faithful to strengthen us in the face of temptation that you may be able to bear it the word says see a lot of times uh, we get tricked not only with the temptation but we get tricked thinking that that, uh, that that there's there's no way you can get away from this thing there's no way you can not do this there's no way that in the Corinthian church, there's no way you can not, how, how are you ever going to, to divide out and pull out the sexual aspect of worship in a culture that was all about sexual worship? It's impossible. How are you ever going to do it? Well, the line between God's strength working in you and your strength working in yourself sometimes is razor thin, but sometimes it's a really a broad, broad broad line that's easy to distinguish lean into God for his strength lean into God for his power it's not just uh, the escape aspect is true but there's also this issue that you may be able to bear through the temptation to be strengthened up to face the temptation, to say no. No, and I know that seems really simplistic. But as many times as somebody that's been addicted to something said yes, and it becomes super easy. Sometimes you think of your own scenario, and it's just like, the first time I actually said no, and we heard testimony of people that had said no, and then had success for a month, and then 
you know, fall back into it and start, you know, using again or whatever. There is that ongoing battle for sure. But sometimes it's just like, I'm not going to go there. I'm just not going to go there. And that's a one-time occurrence that can be a multiple-time occurrence. God's faithful to strengthen us in the face of temptation. He's faithful to lead us through temptation regardless of what it is. And he calls us to be faithful also. He calls us to be faithful. He's faithful for us. He always extends that component towards the people that are following him. We're called to be faithful. See, in all of Israel's history, in the account there in Exodus, there was really two men that kind of stood out. If you, I'm not putting them on a pedestal, but the Bible and God in his account of them, they kind of stand out above the rest in a way. Two Hebrew men who survived the desert. See, ultimately, nobody survived if you were over the age of 20 because of their disobedience. But two guys, Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb were two men that stood against the odds. They stood against the report of their brethren. They stood against and stood out in the statistical realm of the feedback of what was going on in the land. Numbers 14 tells us of how Joshua and Caleb stood out differently in that crowd of fearful Israelites because they believed God would rid the land of the giants. They believed that God would do just what he said he would do because they had faith. They were rewarded with the inheritance in the land that God had promised because they stood faithful. They stood faithful to God's promise. They stood faithful to God's ways. They stood faithful to what God had desired for all of the people, for everybody. They stood out in opposition, in a sense, to what the crowd had to say, the way the winds were blowing the day they get back from, with a report with their brethren. They stood out differently. They said, no, let's, let's go do it. Like, God's on our side. If God's on our side, we, we have an unfair advantage. Here we go, back to that phrase, back to that quote. And they did. They believed that that was true. Their brothers didn't believe it was true, but they believed it was true. And they were the two that stand out above the crowd simply because they had faith. The worship team wants to come on up. I'll close with this passage out of the book of Revelation. At the end of the book of Revelation, Jesus had these words that described himself. These words that would describe those who would make it in and those that wouldn't. And he had these, he says this, I'll just start in verse 12. Jesus' words. And behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And blessed are those who do His commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. But outside, so those that don't, outside are dogs and sorcerers, and sexual immoral, and murderers and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you of these things in the churches. I am the root of the offspring of David, the bride and morning star, and star. <clears throat> and the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirst come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. It's a great little passage that reflects the heart of God. That reflects why Jesus came in the first place. And what's going to happen the second go around. And his invitation to come and drink, drink, drink of him. Of his ways. That we could participate in all of eternity with him.
It's a wonderful passage. Let's rise. Let's worship Him as we close out. Of course, we're going to prepare after that. After the closing uh, prayer, we'll prepare for today's potluck. Again, I want to encourage everybody. uh, Really, really consider coming on Sunday nights. An eight-week course. An eight-week course that might change the trajectory of your family. It might change the trajectory of the future for your kids. It might change the trajectory of your own marriage, of your own walk with the Lord. So we just, as we close, we'd invite you to make sure and participate. If you have any questions, you can see myself, you can see David, Tim, Les, and Dennis over here as well. Uh, Come and talk to us. We'd love to talk to you about it.